from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony. It's Didactic Syncast with your host Eric P. And welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Every week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started! A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But if I now do me a favor, favor. Let me in here Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of light this podcast is brought to you by the Snot Burglar. I know it's weird for me to do ads, but all the other podcasts like Greg Proops and Comedy Bang Bang do them, so I figure I should too if I want to be taken seriously. And besides, I gots to get paid. But don't worry, I'm going to work it in subtly with my trademark wit and bombast. So this podcast is brought to you by the Snot Burglar. Hey everybody, Eric P. here. Don't you hate it when snot gets all crazy and messes your life up? Well, now you don't have to worry about it. Just go to my website, fbesp.org, and click the Snot Burglar banner. It's easy, and you can link it with your Facebook account, and it works. Enter the promo code SNOTBURGLAR into snotburglar.com for a free two-month trial. And now, on with the show. Ow, my wrist! Uh, actually, my wrist doesn't hurt anymore, but it was hurting for a while. Over the weekend, somehow I sprained it. Maybe I slept on it wrong. I don't know. Uh, it was all messed up, and I couldn't move it much, and I had to wear an ace bandage. And I was like, what's up with that? I'm working on the novel, making good progress. Nobody cares. I know. Whatever. When it's done, people will care, but I don't know that anybody's like, I've got to know where he's at with the book right now. Also, I'm going on a little vacay. So uh, next week, there will be no show, and you will thrash around on the floor crying and wailing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so deal with it. I don't know what to tell you, people. I got family to see. I'm going to see my nephew for the first time. Yay! And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a good trip, I think. We're going to hook up with crowds, see my mom, Diane's family, and see Annie O'Connell. Yay! I'm very excited. So it'll be really cool, and that's going to be awesome. Meanwhile, what's going on in the world? A lifeguard in Florida saved a drowning man, and he got fired for it. This took place in Hallandale Beach in Florida, and uh, yeah, it's so messed up. As lifeguards are paid and trained to do, Thomas Lopez rushed down the beach to rescue a drowning man, and then he got fired for it. The problem was Lopez stepped out of the beach zone his company is paid to patrol, a supervisor said Tuesday. Hey, guess what, people? This is what privatization looks like. This is how it used to be with fire stations. If you didn't have the badge of the fire station closest to your house... And when your house caught fire, they just roll right by. And this is what's going on here. Because I actually asked the dude, he did an AMA on Reddit, and I asked him, do you think this is because of privatization? A public agency wouldn't be like, oh, they're outside of our zone, and therefore we're not going to save them. Like, what the hell? And somebody else on Reddit pointed out that if this dude had let the guy die, obviously he would have been in trouble there. So he was kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And this is an example of why the market has to be restrained, man. It's not always rational. House plants and nipples. 
Uh, also this week uh, in the news, thousands of veterans sign up for job education. There's this new program uh, where they're helping veterans get more education for different jobs. Officials at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs say there has been an enormous response to a new skills-based program that pays for up to a year of education toward an associate degree or a non-college degree or certificate. In fewer than seven weeks since the VA began accepting applications for the Veteran Retraining Assistance Program, VRAP, uh, 27,080 unemployed veterans have applied. That's more than half the maximum amount the VRAP program will allow in its first year. VA spokesman Randall Noller said this week, Hey, VA program, expand the program. That's a good idea. As you know, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, I think it's a disgrace how badly we provide for our veterans when they come back from serving overseas. And, uh, yeah, not to mention everyone else in the country. Uh, yeah, anyway. John Huntsman is going to skip the GOP convention. Uh, Huntsman was a candidate for the Republican Party, and he got beat up pretty early on. He was not a very exciting guy. Um, but the conservative elements of the party really harped in on the fact that he was an ambassador to China for a while, and he was like fluent in Mandarin. I think one of his daughters maybe was adopted from China or something. Um, and and like it's like, oh, the Chinese menace. They actually released these commercials that were like, oh, he's he's going to make us all speak Chinese or whatever. Just questioning him, you know? They don't come right out and say, like, he's a bad man. Anyway, he says this. I will not be attending this year's convention nor any Republican convention in the future until the party focuses on a bigger, bolder, more confident future for the United States, a future based on problem-solving, inclusiveness, and a willingness to address the trust deficit, which is every bit as corrosive as our fiscal and economic deficits, Huntsman said, and that's a really interesting uh, development because, you know, I, I, I look, I disagree with people on the right side of the political spectrum for the most part, but I think it's important for us to be able to have a conversation, and right now the Republican Party is not having any conversations. It's all about obstructionism and stopping where the party of no, our only priority is to make sure Obama's a one-term president, blah, 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 blah. In uh, related news, there's this interesting thing from Slate, uh, Salon.com uh, about a guy who wrote, he wrote, I was a right-wing child star. Uh, is this dude who, when he was like 13 years old, he, he started spouting a lot of talking points from the Republican Party. And they were like, you're awesome, kid. Get on over here. Give speeches, tea party events, whatever. Blah. And he got really famous for it. And now he's realized four years later, oh, you know what? That's stupid. And he wrote this. This is a good piece on Salon. I recommend that you check it out. And some people have responded angrily. They're like, whatever. Why is he getting attention just because he reconsidered his political views from when he was 13, duh. But I think it's a reminder that no matter how old you are, your political views should never be set in stone, and you should never be about just spouting a certain ideology. Ideology over intelligence, man. I keep saying it. Um, so anyway, this is what he wrote. Political divisiveness in America today is a childish thing anyway. The never-ending war between the left and right seems to me like a couple of drunken college boys fighting over which one of their fraternities is cooler. Think about it. Once you join a side, you have to obey the house rules, go to all the parties and defend your status as a member of the greatest club on campus. And this is what drove me away from conservatism to my admittedly center-left position of independent-mindedness, if that's a thing. I was tired of being a part of the ideological warfare this country is so caught up in. I was tired of the right wing using me as an example of how young people get whatever they're talking about, when it's obvious I didn't get what I was talking about at all. I mean, come on, I was between 13 and 14 when I was regurgitating these talking points. What does a kid who has never paid a tax bring to the table in a conversation about the burden of taxes? What does a healthy child know about people who can't afford health care because of pre-existing conditions? No matter how intelligent a person might be, certain political issues require life experience. They're much more complicated than the black and white frames imposed 
opposed by partisan America. And then later in the end, he says, this is what the story boils down to. A 17-year-old has different opinions than he did at 13. People may be disappointed by how underwhelming that is, but it's how the world works. Some people move on with life, mature, and realize they don't know everything, nor will they ever know everything. Then again, some don't. Amen, kid. I wish you a lot of luck. And uh, yeah, I think that open-mindedness, true open-mindedness is a really important thing. And we don't see enough of it. Meanwhile, Davy D had a really interesting post about uh, black, unarmed black folks killed by police. And this is the two-year anniversary of the... Uh, the verdict for uh, Oscar Grant and he was a um, controversial decision. The killer cop who shot an unarmed handcuffed Oscar Grant in the back at point blank range in front of hundreds of BART subway riders in Oakland, California on New Year's morning, 2009. Um, so that was the, 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 this was the second anniversary of the verdict coming down about that. And th his post points out that that's, that verdict remains messed up, but it's the, the key here is that it's not the only story like it. In fact, there's a lot of stories like it. Uh, so he, he runs down this whole list of people who have been in very similar circumstances. And this is what I think, you know, people can point to individual acts, you know, especially the Trayvon Martin case. We can get so caught up in the details there. Uh, did he do that? Did he not do that? Who was calling for help? What was the status of this? Da, da, da. And some of that discussion is important, but the, the, a lot of times people miss the bigger picture, which is that this stuff happens all the time. And as someone pointed out recently, I don't remember who it was, uh, if, if George Zimmerman had had an actual police badge, we wouldn't even know Trayvon's name. Because a lot of times, police do this stuff and then it just goes away because we assume, oh, police must have had a good reason and, and, and we trust that the police would never kill an innocent person. And they certainly wouldn't get away with it if they did. But there are a lot of questions about a lot of these situations. I'm not ready to stand up and say, every one of these people was without blame and blah, blah, blah. But... It's, I think it's a disturbing trend of police brutality and going over the line when, and, and us as a society accepting it when we would never accept it with white people, unarmed civilians being killed like this. Since the Grant Verdict Day, we've seen an outrageous 680,000 people stopped and frisked in New York, with over 90% of those stops being black and brown men, with less than 5% resulting in any weapons recovered. So there's another thing for you out of the article now. Again, as with the education stuff, if this stuff worked, we could have a different conversation about whether the, the harms justify the benefit, blah, blah, blah. 5%? That's atrocious. That doesn't justify anything. I mean, it, 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 you probably can't justify it anyway, but even so, ah! Stop and frisk led to the shooting death of unarmed Ramarley Graham. We've seen police shoot a motorist, Hernandez L. Dowdy, in Memphis, Tennessee, after some falsely someone falsely accused him of carjacking. We've seen police in Pasadena shoot 19-year-old Kendrick McDade, falsely accused of stealing a computer. We've seen an officer in Chicago shoot an innocent bystander named Rakia Boyd after he mistakenly thought the man standing next to her had a gun. We've seen police in White Plains, New York, shoot unarmed Army vet, senior citizen named Kenneth Chamberlain Sr., I've talked about him on the show, who accidentally set off his medical alert pendant. The officer at the center of the killing has a sordid history of brutality and racism. We've seen poli Oakland police shoot high school senior Alan Blueford in the back and then lie about the self-inflicted wound the officer suffered. It, it happens so frequently, and most people have no idea that this is going on, and that's messed up, and it should not happen. Speaking of things that are messed up, oh my god, I just saw this article today about this woman named Tony Medrano. Uh, it's such a tragedy in every direction you look, man. Oh my god. Okay, so here is this woman from Cottage Grove, Minnesota, who um, she, she was drinking and lying on the couch next to her baby, and then she fell asleep on the couch, rolled over and suffocated him. Now she's dead. 
uh, Nancy Grace did a segment on this woman, and she's like berating her and asking her all these questions, and like, why don't you do this and why don't you do that, and rah, 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 rah. and Madrano watched the show and she read lots of co- the comments online, and then she set herself on fire last week, and she was hospitalized and then died instantly, or not instantly, but you know she died, and it's so freaking tragedy. And, and Nancy Grace was talking about vodka. I mean, Nancy Grace is Dana Gould said that Nancy Grace, there's something about her that would look very natural darting out of your headlights as you drive along a deserted country road late at night. Um, So, I mean, this is an example of how... I understand... Okay, trying to give Nancy Grace the benefit of the doubt. God, there's something I never thought I'd ever do in my lifetime. Let's say she's motivated by a passionate desire for justice for her and exploited children and, and, you know, kids who were killed. I understand that, but your fanaticism... Again, this notion of, like, my mission is the right one and I don't apologize for anything and I'm going to take people to task and and to hell with, you know, compassion and all that... Um, the, 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 here's where it backfires because surely this woman, I mean, look, I, I don't know anything about this woman, but I can't imagine you could possibly kill your own child, especially if it was an accident as this obviously was and not feel completely horrible about it. This is going to ruin this person's conception of reality, regardless of what caused it. And she probably knew she had a drinking problem. I mean, alcoholism is the disease, right? Like Mitch Hedberg said, damn it, Otto, you have lupus. Damn it, Otto, you're an alcoholic. Uh, you know, and, and so this probably didn't help all those feelings of resentment and shame and humiliation and, and grief and self-loathing and all the rest of it. So Nancy Grace gets on TV and starts berating you and calling you horrible names and all this stuff. And uh, so this woman wrote, uh, this friend of hers uh, posted uh, this week about how Madrano had watched the show and read all the comments online, or, you know, a lot of them, and she wrote, I'm actually a close family friend. You and anyone else tossing harsh words have no idea what happened. Yes, drinking with your infant child isn't the best thing to do, but it's not for me to judge. This was indeed an accident, and she had to live with that accident. But Nancy Grace, you have shown so much evil upon her amongst other people in the media. She's now in a hospital after committing suicide, and she has a zero chance to live. So thanks for demonizing a person for an accidental death and causing another person's death. I used to be a fan, but now all I see is another rating-seeking, soulless monster and this is just I I just think this is so horrible and apparently this isn't the first time this has happened there was another woman whose son disappeared and Nancy Grace just sort of assumed that she was the one responsible and started like harassing her with all these questions and just firing all this stuff why aren't you revealing this why aren't you and then the woman committed suicide and after that incident Nancy Grace said if anything I would suggest that guilt made her commit suicide to suggest that a 15 or 20 minute interview can cause someone to commit suicide is focusing on the wrong thing and, uh, you know, this is insane. Why is this woman still allowed on TV? What purpose does she serve? How does she make the world a better place? And again, I mean, obviously, look, yes, child abductions, killing of children, all that. It's a problem, no doubt. But 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 is her angry vitriol toward anyone that she can get near really a good thing? It seems like that's more of this sort of, you know, angry, just, rah, like, I'm going to be nasty to everyone, and that's my way of serving justice. And no... In Pakistan, a progressive voice for tribal women has been silenced. Uh, This is a very sad story that comes from the Tribune.com.pk, which is a Pakistani news source. Uh, It's with the International Herald Tribune. Uh, This woman named uh, Farida, belonging to the Afridi sub-tribe Kokikel, was targeted on Wednesday morning at 6.30 a.m. when she left her house in Tehsil Jamrud Gundi Kali for her office in Hayatabad. 
Uh, quote, she was cornered by motorcyclists who shot her and she died on the way to Jamrud Hospital, said witness Abid Ali. Farida was 25 years old. Along with her sister Noor Zia, Farida was committed to social change and economic emancipation for women from the platform of a welfare organization called the Society for Appraisal and Women Empowerment in Rural Areas, Sawira. Both women were among the founding members of the NGO and she had a master's degree in gender studies. I mean, obviously, this sort of murder is, is obviously a tragedy everywhere on the planet, but especially in Pakistan where... There, it's got to be so hard to be a progressive voice for women's rights and, and, and for her to meet this fate, obviously, is sending a message to everyone else in the country. This is what happens when you speak out, and it just sucks, and it's blah. Kofi Annan, meanwhile, keeps pushing a peace plan in Syria. Uh, Syria, as I've said, is basically on, on the brink of an all-out civil war, and it's for all accounts and purposes, it's basically going on already. Uh, but Kofi Annan's been working very hard to try to get a peace plan enacted, and there's a very interesting development here because it has to do with um, Iran and the United States. Uh, this is from the article, which is from AP Associated Press. It's unclear what role Annan envisions for Iran, a staunch Syrian ally that has stood by Assad throughout the uprising. Tehran's close ties could make it an interlocutor within the regime, though the U.S. has often refused to let the Islamic Republic attend conferences about the Syria crisis. And I can't help wondering, I mean, don't get me wrong, like, I don't have a lot of love for Syria right now, and I don't have a lot of love for Iran supporting Syria. Like, I'm angry at China and Russia for supporting Syria. But I can't help wondering how much of our refusal to let Iran into the process might be costing people lives, because we we want to make sure that we benefit geopolitically and not Iran. So, I don't know, that's all kinds of messed up. Let's just talk about economics. There's an article in this source called readersupportednews.org, which has a number of interesting contributors. Um, anyway, the headline was student loan debt suicide, and it says it's talking about the increase. You know, like we saw in Greece and Italy uh, with the economic crises all over Europe, we've seen an increase in suicide, and it's very hard to connect one-to-one -one with economic problems and suicide, but there's no question that a lot of people commit suicide because of economic problems, among others. Um, so that sort of connects this, or this article connects that back to the United States and students who graduate with all this incredible debt. Suicide is the dark side of the student loaning crisis, and despite all the media attention to the issue of student loans, it's been severely underreported. I can't ignore it, though, because I'm an advocate for people who are struggling to pay their student loans, and I've been receiving suicidal comments for over two years and occasionally hearing reports of actual suicides. More people are being forced into untenable financial circumstances as outstanding student loan debt has surpassed $1 trillion, and people simply aren't able to pay all the money they owe. In the past few years, the rate of defaults for federal loans has increased in an alarm rate. According to the Department of Education, those recent graduates who began repayments in 2009, 8.8% .8 had already defaulted on their federal loans. That compares to 7% in 2008. Currently, 36 million Americans have outstanding federal loans. I can't help but wonder how many of those millions are feeling distressed or suicidal, or how many have attempted suicide because of all that debt hanging over their heads. Amen. Um... Yeah, meanwhile, J.P. Morgan's losses could reach $9 billion uh, as J.P. Morgan has moved rapidly to unwind the position, its most volatile assets in particular. Um, in internal models at the bank have recently projected losses of as much as $9 billion. In April, the bank generated an internal report that showed that the losses, assuming worst-case conditions, could reach $8 billion to $9 billion, according to a person who reviewed the report. So... 
That's good news. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan got a $10 billion subsidy. Well, not directly. This is from Business Week, and it's about this indirect subsidy. Uh, according to Reuters, on June 28th, Richard Fisher, president of the Dallas Federal Reserve, said that the markets assume that larger banks are too big to let fail. That much we knew. He also pointed out that this assumption lowers borrowing costs for those banks, which he calls an unfair subsidy. He doesn't name names, but we can... This is Business Week writing. Uh, even better, we can give you an idea of the size of this subsidy. By one estimate, between 2007 and 2010, simply being too big to fail saved America's biggest banks a combined $120 billion. Citigroup saved the most, coming in at just over $50 billion. And even with its fortress balance sheet, yeah, I said that right, fortress balance sheet, I guess meaning that they they didn't have a lot of risky stuff, but you know what, they did, I'm sorry. Uh, we just didn't realize it was risky at the time. Even with its fortress balance sheet, J.P. Morgan saved just under $10 billion thanks to its size and importance. So here's another example of why people who say, and this is the whole Tea Party's position, is that like, because they're angry about the bailouts too, as they should be, duh, but... They say, oh, we should have just let the banks fail. It's not going to happen. No one's going to let it happen. And the markets can show how, I mean, the markets are a good indicator of actual confidence around the world, right? And so if these banks are getting these enormous virtual subsidies by the virtue of the fact that they're too big to fail, that shows that it's never going to happen, doesn't it? Don't you think? I mean, markets are not rational, but they are often accurate reflectors of the realities, especially geopolitical realities. No no Congress, no president is going to let these banks just catastrophize into the ocean. That's not a word. I know it's not a word. Shut up! You're already arguing with yourself, Piotrowski? It's only 20 minutes in. Hey, I argue with myself all the time. You don't even want to hear what's around when you're not around. What I'm saying when you're not... You said it wrong! Shut up! For Mexicans, it was the economy, stupid. Uh, this is a piece from the New York Times, and it says, Commentators focused on the six-year-old drug war have largely neglected the, to note the depth of Mexico's economic problems as a factor in the most recent elections in Mexico. It is not fashionable among observers in the United States or Mexico to mention that Mexico's economy has performed abysmally for more than 30 years. Starting with the recession and Latin American debt crisis in the early 1980s, the PRI, which is a political party in Mexico, shifted toward what economists call neoliberalism. <laughs> Boo, neoliberalism. Abandoning state-led industrial and development policies, tightening monetary and fiscal policies, and liberalizing foreign investment and trade. The North American Free Trade Agreement, which took effect in 1994, was only the most visible example of this transformation. And all those things by themselves, I mean, look, state-led industry, I mean, uh, industry, that's not how people say it. Shut up! Uh... State-led industry. I mean, look, I'm not arguing for like state control of industry or anything like that, but but in some places it works. And and the whole notion of neoliberalism is again destroying barriers to free trade. And what that generally means is foreign competition comes in and they buy up all the industry and they they put a lot of people out of work and they make everything very very efficient. And they pay zero wages. I mean, not literally zero, but they pay nearly slave slavery wages. And they 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 they. they they get around all the environmental regulations or they you know lobby politicians or buy them off in some places uh to just gut the environmental regulations and then they can you know make the stuff cheaply and 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 pollute everywhere and and, and all these costs are externalized for these companies this is why when we talk about the economy of the united states or great britain or anywhere else in the country or anywhere else in the world <sighs> slow down Petrowski. okay deep breath <sighs> yeah 
Um, we can't talk about them just in isolation. We can't talk about the economy of the United States. Well, we need to get job creation going by cutting taxes. Or even simply, we need to get job creation by stimulating the economy with you know a little public spending. The point is that we need to change the entire view of our economic organization on a global scale. Uh, that's going to be really tough in order to avoid allowing these companies to just go wherever the labor costs are cheapest at the moment and wherever they can pollute the most. Instead, we need to say that there needs to be universal respect for independent unions, there need to be universal environmental regulations, and then companies won't be so quick to just scamper off to some other place where they can pollute things and mess the whole world up! Diane Ravitch is once again like half of my education stories this week. Um, yeah, she had a number of things. Her blog continues to be of good quality. Not every post is essential reading, but she has a lot of good stuff on there. Um, she had a thing about the parent trigger notion that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, parent trigger, for those who don't know, is where a community takes a vote and they say, we don't like the way the school is doing things. They can fire all the teachers, they can fire the administrators, and they can privatize the school, which basically means handing it over to some corporation or some small company. And if you remember what I said about the Louisiana schools, where a lot of the charter schools and a lot of the alternative schools that have popped up are like students sitting in cubicles studying the Bible, like that's the school day. Um, so that's what, so she's addressing this question about parent trigger. And here's what she says. A public school belongs to the public, not to 51% of those who use it today. It is a public trust paid for by taxpayers, owned by the public, created for future generations, not for those who happen to be there this week or month or year. And let's not forget that even if 51% of the parents at a school at a certain point in time can generate, you know, enough votes for them to take over the school and therefore fundamentally transform its entire nature from public to private and from accountable democratically to not accountable democratically. Uh, let's not forget that a, a well-financed company could go into a community and massively fund a so-called grassroots effort to take over the school because they stand to benefit from it. And you have some parents who are probably legitimately angry. They might be exploited and used by this company because they want to get this parent trigger active, and that's so messed up. Um, anyway, she goes on, does uh, this person who is supporting Parent Trigger also support the idea that anyone who musters a 51% petition can privatize public parks, public housing, public transit, public libraries, and other public services? Does she also support the idea that 51% of charter school parents should have the right to convert their school back to the public sector? Uh, she also wrote again about New Orleans this week. Uh, she says, I received an email. It's called the Scarlet Letter in New Orleans. I received an email from an educator in New Orleans who read my post about the proposal by a management consultant to require low-performing charter schools to post their grades on the wall and on their clothing. This is just like the Scarlet Letter. It's like, how is this different from the Scarlet Letter, the book by Nathaniel Hawthorne? The informant said that the proposal to the Algiers Charter School Association was not merely theoretical. It was already imposed at the McDonough number 32 charter school. He or she sent me two photographs. One showed the school's letterhead declaring it has a grade of F, and the other showed a public banner with the school's F grade and its goals for improvement boldly displayed. How is that supposed to do anything? And of course, this comes back to the question about grading students, because... We've seen some research that suggests that when a student gets a grade of F, they come to think, like, I'm an F student, and that can affect your internal motivation schema.
And that's surely the case about your workplace. Can you imagine going into a school every day and seeing that F glaring at you every day? Of course you're going to start thinking, well, we're just an F school. No, 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 no. She also wrote a piece about the Common Core standards. Uh, the Common Core, and her main point is that we don't know what the Common Core is going to do for education. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be neither. She says, the Common Core will be implemented in 45 states without a pilot trial. No one knows that they will raise expectations or achievement, uh, whether they will have no effect, whether they will depress achievement, or whether they will be so rigorous that they increase the achievement gaps. Now, I don't know either, and I, I know some people that I respect quite a bit saying that the Common Core standards are a really good way to go forward and that they give us some grounds to use when people say, well, you're not teaching the kids right, and, and this and that. Um, but I agree with her that this is an untested approach, and it also feels to me a little bit like old wine and new bottles, because every five or ten years in the world of education, and I've been around for, I mean, I've been on the planet for 36 years now. I had to do some math just then, because I'm not so good with the math. Why are you using a southern accent for that guy? Maybe he's southern stereotype, racist? No, that would be regionalist. Shut up! Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm not good with math. But I've been on the planet for 36 years, and I've seen, a f I mean, I've been studying education as a profession for about, I don't know, 15 of that. And I think it's fair to say that uh, it's, it, it, we've seen a lot of these cycles of new things coming along saying this is the next new thing. And my mom, who was, was a teacher all her life and still continues to teach, uh, she she's seen a lot more of them. And it, you know, it's whole language and then it's, you know, this approach and then it's that approach. And in the school where I've taught for, you know, 10 years now, we've seen a number of those approaches as well. So uh, I, I worry that we're going to put a lot of time and effort into this and then 10 years from now, something else is going to come along and bump this out of the way. And we'll have to do some new, stand, new set of of universal application material instruction standards. And we'll be like, what? No, 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 this is real. This is going to be the great way to proceed in the future. Anyway, George Will also wrote a, he wrote a really wishy-washy piece about what's going on in Chicago. Um, there's this sort of power struggle going on between Rahm Emanuel and others encouraging a business model approach to reforming education in Chicago and the teachers union and other forces, people resisting that. And, it's his piece was sort of like here's what's going on in Chicago and it didn't really take any positions on anything it was more an overview of what's happening there which is fine but I, I think that we're at a point in our nation's education life cycle where people need to take positions and we need to make it clear what we advocate and what we do not but here, I'll give George Will credit for this. He says, Abundant data demonstrate that the vast majority of differences in schools' performance can be explained by qualities of the families from which the students come to school. Uh, the amount of homework done at home, the quantity and quality of reading material in the home, the amount of television watched in the home, and most important variable, the number of parents in the home. Now, I, I think that it, we're dangerously close here, as we often are when I read conservatives, uh, to dipping into the swimming pool of well, it, it's the parents' fault, and more to the point, like, a lot of times this is code language for, like, well, black parents don't do this, and black families don't do that, and blah, 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 blah. And I don't, I don't want to support that in any way, shape, or form. All I want to say is that th there's a lot more factors than just the teacher, yeah? So if a child does amazing things to get better over the course of a school year, obviously the teacher's a part of that, but the teacher's not the only reason why that's happening, right? Likewise, if a student does not do well during a school year, the teacher is a part of that, but the teacher is not the only one responsible for it. 
and we always have to ask, why isn't this student doing very well? And you know who we should start with that question to? The student. Because I can't tell you how many conferences I've sat in on and how frequently I see people talking about education reform, what would work better for kids and what's better for this kid, without ever, I don't see any evidence that anyone has ever sat down with the kid and said, what's wrong? Why aren't you doing well? And I know, look, don't get me wrong, I know a lot of kids in those situations would go, uh, it's boring. And okay, so maybe in some cases we can't get very far by asking why isn't the kid doing well. But we have to start there, especially if we actually want kids to take responsibility for their own educations. If they feel, as a lot of students do feel, because I've heard them say it quite explicitly, that, that nobody really cares what they think. Well, of course they're not going to take responsibility for their own education because they've been told all their adult lives or all their, you know, schooling lives that what they think doesn't matter. And it's just about regurgitating stuff and it's just about spitting it back on the test and it's about rote memorization and yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, there is a very interesting article in the Christian Science Monitor about why single-sex education is spreading across the United States. Now, it doesn't really address why it's happening. It just sort of talks about how it's happening and, and what some of the supports and positions for and again are all about. So the article says, about halfway through the article, Diane F. Halpern, a former president of the American Psychological Association, co-authored a series of studies last fall in the journal Science that found research doesn't support the benefits of single-sex education. Additionally, there are lots of problems whenever you segregate people into groups, Halpern said. Quote, stereotyping increases, so we really do have lots of data that says it's just not supported, she said. Um, now, people on the other side say, yes, the research does show their benefits. And obviously, there's a little, you know, there's going to be some research to support whichever position you want to take. And, and my question is always like, okay, well, what does the majority of the research show? Or what's the difference between the research that supports position X and position Y? And I think, you know, because a lot of people, I think, get cynical when they hear people talking about research because they're like, well, you know, as, as Shakespeare says in Merchant of Venice, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. And, and there's going to be research that supports any position you hold. The question is, what's the quality of that research? And and this really hit me home when I read the book Grand Theft Childhood. And if you haven't read that book, I, I know people who know me from the world of video games are sick of hearing me recommend it, but I really do recommend it for everyone because it's a really good example of somebody sitting down and saying, okay, I want to look at the entire body of research around this issue and I'm going to sort through it. I'm going to try to figure out how the research is done and what are the telling things about how these studies are performed. Formed. For instance, one of the things they broke down in that book really well is we see research sometimes and news headlines that say, new study finds that video games increase aggression in children. You've probably seen a headline like that. Well, what they saw, these researchers who were Grand Theft Childhood, what they realized is the question they asked was, how are we measuring aggression? Well, in at least one study, measuring aggression, like the kid would play the video game, and some kids were given, you know, like, social games, you know, like maybe some Mario or whatever, and some kids were given like Mortal Kombat and Call of Duty or whatever. And the kids who were given the violent video games, afterwards, after everybody gets done playing the game, they would like push a button to make a noisy sound. Or whatever. And that was how they would show that aggression. But And the kids who played the social or, you know, more light-hearted games didn't press the button as often or whatever. 
The question is, is that a meaningful way to look at aggression in children? I don't know. I'm skeptical. So again, it's just asking that sort of question, you know, and digging deeper into the research rather than just saying, well, some research says this and some research says that, and that's the end of it. Because that's what people are trying to do with climate change. That's what people do with evolution. And it's not that simple. It's not like it's just 50-50 split. In the case of climate change, it's like 98 to 2%. And yes, I mean, I had a student one time who brought me this research report written by some guy at MIT. It was like, here's why I left the UN climate panel and here's all these charts showing why climate change is a myth and blah blah blah, blah. and I, I, I'm no scientist what am I going to make out of that so all I can do is figure out okay who do I trust in the world to try to sift through that science for me and you know I, I thank you dear listener for trusting me to sift through current events and economics and killer robots on your behalf but as always I encourage you to keep looking into it right and we should all be willing to keep looking into it and when people go representing well here's what the research says they can't just stop with well the research supports my position it has to be why does it support your position how does it support your position and blah and blah and blah uh, so the article goes on. However, proponents have put out their own studies showing the benefits of separating students. Middleton Heights Elementary cited the research when it first piloted single-sex classes in a few grades. The goal was to address the struggles boys were having in reading. Obviously a serious problem. I do want to know about how we can combat that. The article goes on. In the single-sex classes, teachers use microphones that allow them to electronically adjust the tone of their voice to match the level that research suggests is best for boys. When preparing for a test, the, the boys may go for a run or engage in some other activity, while the girls are more likely to do calming exercises such as yoga. Now, imagine you're a girl who isn't into yoga. Imagine you're a girl who really likes to run. Or imagine you're a boy who likes yoga. And your whole class is going out for a run to prepare for a test, and you're the boy going, I want to... I mean, it's like The Simpsons. It's just like The Simpsons, man. I can't tell you how closely The Simpsons... Because The Simpsons had an episode where Springfield Elementary, for some reason, got in the hands of someone else, and, and they set up these gender-divided classes. I think Principal Skinner kept saying like really horrible things about... like He started off with, like, well, everyone knows girls are no good at science, and everyone's like, how dare you? And then he kept saying more and more things that were like atrocious and offensive. And eventually we ended up with a school that sounds just like this. Oh, and the next paragraph or later on the article, they learn the same curriculum. They still lunch and play at recess together, but the differences in their learning environments are apparent from the blue chalkboards in the boy classrooms to the red paper hearts that decorate the wall of one of the girls classrooms. And again, this is just like the Simpsons. This is out of the article now. Uh, this is just like the Simpsons. Cause Lisa was in this environment where it was like the teacher put on a lava lamp and she's like, what does a plus sign smell like? What, what's the sound of a 14 or whatever it is. Uh, and she was just like this, I'm not learning anything. Can I sneak? And she sneaks into the boys room because she's like uh, she dresses up like a boy I'm a new student whatever it is, I don't even remember and she's trying to I remember at one point she's trying to decide whether or not to do this thing where she like tricks people into thinking she's a boy so she can get into the boys classroom and she hears all these voices in her head I'll see if I can find the sound clip yes I found the sound clip there was a little bit of an edit there in case you couldn't tell so here's Lisa trying to decide whether or not she's going to sneak in to become a boy in the do it, Lisa. You'll be greater than or equal to boys. Even though you're only eight, your possibilities are infinite. Twenty-seven! <laughs> Twenty-seven! And in case you haven't guessed, and I'll put this in the show notes too, don't worry about that. Twenty-seven! Uh, <laughs> um, she uh, So during that moment, she's seeing like the eight, 
hovering near her, you know, like voices in the head, and, and so and then becomes an infinity sign, and you probably picked that up. But in case you can't quite visualize it, go ahead and check out my website, fbesp.org, and you'll see the visuals that accompany that awesome moment from The Simpsons. Uh, the article finishes up, uh, both sides agree the idea is not new and has a long history in private schools. And this is the most interesting part for me. But Galen Sherwin, staff attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project, said its history in public schools, gender division classrooms, is much darker and has roots in the South, where it was broadly instituted in an effort to evade the desegregation requirements of Brown versus the Board of Education to try, quote, to prevent black boys from being in the same room as white girls. So I I'm not saying that intrinsically that's what this program is, but we have to recognize that things come from other things, yeah? And as as noble as the effort to try to encourage girls to do better in math and science and for boys to explore their poetry side, I don't like the idea of single-gender classrooms. I think it leads to a lot more negatives than it does positives, and especially when, you know, people like the former head of the American Psychological Association says that the research doesn't support it. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to agree with her. I think she's probably going to be talking about. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! <clears throat> I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh, listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Wanna kill all humans? Yeah, thanks to Stu for the woman threatening to commit suicide over the fake iPhone. This is insane. Uh, over the weekend in southwest China's Sichuan province, a young woman in her 20s threatened to jump off an apartment building supposedly because her boyfriend, quote, lied to her. According to police reports and neighbor accounts, the reason the woman threatened to jump off the roof was because her boyfriend bought her a fake iPhone. Now, obviously, and I said this to Stu over email, obviously, this woman's got some mental problems, no doubt. And obviously, you know, suicide isn't no joke, and, and this is a messed up situation. I hope she gets some sort of help or whatever, blah, blah, blah. The, the, but, but I can't help wondering how much of this has to do with the idea of introducing this crass materialism, this hyper-commercialism into a, an economy that can't support it for most of the population. People get so whipped up for it. And we see this, you know, with young people in the United States. They get so whipped up. I've got to have the new iPhone. I've got to have the new iPad. I've got to have the new sneakers. I've got to have a car. You know, all these kids are like, I've got to have a new computer. I've got to have this. I've got to have that. And... And, and and it can cause problems, you know. People get so focused on money that, and, and materialism, and you get a fake iPhone, suddenly you're on the roof, and you're like, I'm going to jump! How dare you buy me the wrong iPhone! Ah! It's like Massive Attack said, man. Be thankful for what you've got. And I'm not going to sing more of it because I can't sing. But listen to that Massive Attack song, Be Thankful for What You've Got. It's a good song. Meanwhile, the inventor of the robotic butt wants it to communicate. Now, you've heard me talk about the robotic butt before on this show. Uh, there's new news about it. Inventor Nobuhiro Takahashi programmed his creation called Shiri, or butt in Japanese, to respond with different emotions to different human types. Touches. That's right. The robot is respond. The robotic butt is responding to the way you touch it. 
Takahashi hopes to use the prototype technology to develop responses which can be applied to other part of a robot's body, in particular the face, to help with nonverbal communication. So how you touch someone's butt is definitely nonverbal communication. I agree with that. He decided to develop his technology with the rear end because a bottom's movements are large and make it easier to convey emotion. I don't know too many ways you can convey emotion with your butt. I mean, obviously, if you're mad at somebody, you could be like, kiss my butt, and then you point to your butt. But apart from that, I don't know. Can you show that you're happy? I mean, sometimes in the club, maybe you can jiggle it up and down to show that you're having a good time in the club. But I don't know. There are a lot of different circumstances in the world where that really happens. Quote, I wanted to try to use a butt to reflect... I can't get over this. This is a real quote. This dude is a graduate student at the Tokyo University of Electrocommunication. All right, this is a Reuters news article. This isn't coming from like the Sun or or like the you know National Enquirer. This is and then the, remember in Clerks and it said the next week we were all saved by a fish bird thing and then Randall spits water and. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to try and use a butt to reflect emotions, fear, joy, and relaxation, the 24-year-old Takahashi said. I, I, I have no words, man. What do you say about a, a, a robotic butt that can communicate with us? That's, I don't I don't, I don't This weekend, the Duchess and I watched an awesome movie. I was at the exclusive company in Madison, and I found Hannibal Burris's new album, Cha-Ching! It's called Animal Furnace. You should totally check it out. It's very funny. Uh, and we also found a copy of the DVD of A Tribe Called Quest's movie, Beats, Rhymes, and Life. This is a documentary film made by Michael Rappaport, who you might remember from uh, Bamboozled with Spike Lee, and uh, he's in a bunch of other movies as well. He's in Illtown. He's really good in Illtown. Um, anyway, so Michael Rappaport put together this documentary film and he produced it I think he directed it and it's about this group called Tribe Called Quest which they were an awesome group back in the day they're no longer putting out albums Uh, but as I learned from the movie they actually still have one more album on their contract with Jive Records Uh, so let me play you the trailer here and it has some of the music from Tribe in it and uh, oh Tribe Called Quest it rekindled my love of Tribe Called Quest and I've been going back and listening to Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders and all the rest of it I would say that Tribe Called Quest was definitely the fathers of a whole new brand of hip-hop. They completely mastered the form and culture of what hip-hop is supposed to be. Up to then, rap was maybe more about like boasting. They came out and it was like party records, but doing it with a consciousness. Everything about that was magic. Nothing was touching Tribe. Nothing. I've known Q-Tip since we were about two years old. We met in church. Best friends, you know what I'm saying? He was the one who said to me, yo, you should rhyme. And if you could rhyme, that was like a big deal. Then he met Ali in high school, and before you knew it, it was on. You had one voice that was high. A little high-pitched voice. I hated my voice. And then you had Tip, who was like in the middle. And that was always a dynamic. The yin and yang of those two, that to me was the perfect marriage. Oh, can I kick it? These are the drums. Q-Tip just picks the best loops, man. Myself, Kanye. We wouldn't be here, man, if it wasn't like for Tribe albums. The only change yes, I you can. was just to see those guys' relationship deteriorate. Chemistry was dead. 
can I kick you? I've never had a problem. Fife had a problem with me. If I'm asking you a something wrong, say it. Dude, I'm in a group with you. You're not my dad. I'm gone. That was it for me. Good things do come to an end. I did everything I could do. 20 years. Is a Tribe Called Quest gonna make more music? You got the answer to that question? Ah. It's gonna be one interesting documentary. As the trial flies high like a tub. I think the reason why a trial court quest is still relevant is because it was truth. So yeah, definitely check that one out. Uh, Beach Rhymes and Life is the name of the documentary, and it's also the name of one of the later Tribe Called Quest albums, which I never really got into. Uh, same with the love movement, and as they point out in the movie, there wasn't a whole lot of love going on in the Tribe Called Quest group itself at the time that album came out. Um, so it's a little bittersweet to listen to them talking about love when they were having so many problems as a group at the time. Uh, but there's also it's just a fascinating look at everybody involved, Fife Dog and Q-Tip and uh, Fife's health problems. You know, diabetes actually plays a major part in the story. Uh, go figure. Uh, but it's just it's fascinating, and Michael Rappaport does a really good job. And as far as I know, this is his first movie, so he, he really did a good job there. And uh, everybody should check it out. And if you don't know about Tribe Called Quest, uh, it's a great way to learn about them, and then you can go check out their albums. People's Instinctive Travels and the Rhythms of Life are, is the first one, and then the second one's Low End Theory, and then Midnight Marauders. Uh, check them out. Really good stuff. Very jazzy, very funky, as you can hear in that trailer. Uh, yeah, I, I really can't say enough about Tribe Called Quest. Awesome. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Oh, one more thing I should say about Tribe Called Quest. Uh, those who know that song, um, uh, Can I Kick It, is on their first album. And I had never heard the Lou Reed song that samples that. So I had only known it from Tribe Called Quest. So when I was in college and somebody played the original Lou Reed song, I was like, oh, yeah, can I kick it? And they're like, what? I'm like, Tribe Called Quest. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is, can I kick it? And they're like, no, it's not. It's Lou Reed. Well, who's can I kick it? I'm like, that's a song by Tribe Called Quest. Anyway, whatever. Let's talk about the quote of the week. Thomas Paine was a revolutionary era author, pamphleteer, and inventor in the United States. His most famous work was Common Sense, about which John Adams said, quote, without the pen of the author of Common Sense, the sword of General Washington would have been raised in vain. So there you go, pen and mightier in the sword. Uh, Thomas Paine also wrote a piece called The Rights of Man in 1791 where he said, quote, I speak an open and disinterested language dictated by no passion but that of humanity. My country is the world and my religion is to do good. Amen. All right, that's it, folks. Hey, look, we're coming in under an hour again for the second week in a row. Booyah! Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. Don't forget, people, check out the Snot Burglar at snotburglar.com. It's a great new product, and you need one. Uh... <laughs> Shoutouts this week to everyone who listens. Thank you for your support and feedback. It really means a lot to me, people. Uh, those of you who send you know articles and just opinions and crazy links and stuff, I really appreciate that. And just people who let me know, like, hey, I'm listening to the show. I think it's really interesting. Some people are calling me like clever and all that. I don't know about that, but but I do appreciate people. You know, I don't I don't actually get paid for this. This, in case you can't tell, the Snot Burglar is not a real product. I don't know. In fact, don't go to snotburglar.com because I don't know what you'll find if you go to snotburglar.com. 
burglar.com. Here, wait, let's find out. Snotburglar.com. Can I recommend that people check this website out? Well, it's taking a long time to look it up. Oh, nope, there's nothing at snotburglar.com. So you know what? It's as of right now, the 10th of July, 12.32 p.m. Central Time in the United States. Uh, it's safe to go to snotburglar.com, but I can't necessarily say that that's true in the future. The point is, there is no such thing as the Snot Burglar. I don't actually get ad money. I think ads on podcasts are kind of weird and maybe you got to do it to get paid if that's your only job okay whatever everyone's got you know greg proop said everyone danced for the man in some shape or form and that certainly is true for me but but i'm not gonna have any ads on this show because first of all nobody would pay to advertise on this show i don't think orange drink uh but even if they did i wouldn't i wouldn't take advertising because i want to be able to speak my mind man i need to be free blah 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 um my website's there, Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff I've made. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb things I forgot to cut out. What can I say? I'm a very busy man. Deal listen, with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles or whatever, esp at fbesp.org. That's it. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. And here's so a little, powerful. Oh yeah, here's a little something at the end in case you didn't stop listening as soon as that ending music stopped. Hey, wait, the phone's ringing. I gotta go, people.